0: It's a constant surrendering to the piece, constant. And I think that that's most of what uh, painting is, just letting go and surrendering.
1: Welcome to episode two of Magic Praxis, a podcast in which artists talk to artists in their studios. I'm Clarity Haynes, and this is Kate Hawes.
2: In this episode, we visited the painter Brenda Goodman in her Cotskills studio. She has been painting for over 50 years, first in her hometown of Detroit in the legendary Cass Corridor, and then in a loft on the Bowery in New York. Her intensely personal paintings make you look closely at their textured surfaces, which are worked with everything from knives to cake decorating tools. Her content morphs from figuration to abstraction, never becoming one or the other. You might see stone-like heads and intestinal coils, emerging from lattices of lines, geometric shapes, and blocks of saturated color. Clarity and I enjoyed talking to Brenda about her process, her journey through painting, and the people who have been important to
0: her along the way. This is how they, mm-hmm. they start. And God knows how they change. I mean, I don't know what this would look like. So you have
2: black enamel,
0: black very enamel.
2: loose lines, and you're not thinking, you're not, not it's thinking.
0: completely intuitive or however you want to say it. Well, you know, on some level I think about, you know, the calligraphy as Philip Guston would or any, you know, you take any two-inch section of one of his paintings, it's a little painting.
2: So yeah. you say you're thinking about the
0: line. You're thinking a little bit. About, yeah, of course. Yeah. But, you know, not, I'm not like thinking, thinking. Right. Um, Different
2: kind of thinking. And then you apply So you start with the, this kind of loose structure yeah. of lines, and then you, the next step would be the glaze?
0: No, there's already a glaze on them. And so then at this point, I'll say, well, it looks like three figures there. I might make this a bright orange. I mean, just start somewhere. It doesn't matter where. You know, But there's always a hundred times having, once you put a shape or a color down, or not a shape, but a color, then it has to inform whatever's next to it. And sometimes it's scary because it might work, it might not. But the nice thing about these, because it's enamel, is it wipes right up, you know, and it doesn't sit, you know, sink in. So there's so many, there's, you know, a hundred times in doing these little ones that I have to say to myself, okay, just let it go. Just put it down, don't worry about it, don't think about it, and go from there. If it doesn't work, you can just scrape it off or do something with it, and something else will happen. So it's, it's, it's constant surrendering to the piece, constant. And I think that that's most of what uh, painting is, just letting go and surrendering. And, it, you know, it's not an easy thing to do. I remember in the 80s there was a painting I was working on and I just refused to, you know, like, I was like so willful to make it work the way I wanted it to work. Or, or you have a precious area and you, and you work around it and around it and the painting never resolves itself. And then you say, okay, i got to give this up. And as soon as you do, just magically the whole thing comes together. You know, it takes a long time to, you know, so it happens once. You say, well, maybe I could try it again. And each time you see that it works, you start to trust the process. But it doesn't, it's not that easy. So a friend of mine said the other day, she saw this, um, this guy on television. He does like movie stars and well-known people who, who, who uh, talks to the dead. I think he was on uh, Channel 4 and he did, a, he did a talk with Matt Lauer. And he starts off, you know, scribbling, just like these. Like, you know, he just scribbles and he gets in touch with whoever. And, And he's very, very accurate. He's not like... But And they showed a picture of him in his house, and he had a huge scribble frame. And they were just like these, just automatic, you know, he's not looking, he's just, right. you know, making marks, you know. And so she she asked me if maybe on some level I was also communicating with the dead, though I don't know who. Channeling somebody? I was channeling dead people. I said, no. <sighs> I don't think so. I'm not in touch with that. Um, and it, it was his way, but she was, you know, she was so intrigued with how he, he used that to just clear his mind and not, you know, be thinking of other things. So he'd be, a, a, you know, a vessel to talk to whoever. Mm-hmm. Interesting. No, that's really interesting.
1: <laughs> and, it, and it is automatic drawing. It's it's,
0: definitely. I mean, that's the way I like to work the most. When you're working from a surface like this, each one's going to be different. Yeah. You know, so, uh, but the important thing is that they all connect. You see, if you want to see those, I'll show them to you.
1: So I, have one, I just wanted to say, um, yeah. it also, I think, relates to the surrealist technique called the calcomania, yeah. where it's basically chaos and chance, right. totally abstract, and then in that abstraction,
0: finding imagery. That's exactly what it is. It comes from surrealism. You're sort of pulling
2: some order out of the chaos. Mm-hmm. It also seems to—it seems to solve the problem of where do I start? Like it's—you know—it's—it's it's like there's an anxiety in like a blank canvas, I think, and it's like to get something down is right. like to sort of warm up. And but sort there's of an enter. anxiety
0: in this too because there's so many possibilities. It's like <laughs> yeah, where do I begin? Do I pull out this shape? That would be a nice put a nice color in there. Do I pull out this shape? You know, I mean, do I pull out this, you know? It's like, Mm -hmm. so you have to start making decisions and and letting other ones go as they get covered up. And, you know, there is, oh, letting go and anxiety and that too, it's a a different, yeah, it's a different kind, I think, of of anxiety.
1: So I wanted to ask you, when I was upstairs and I saw the self-portrait up in your house in the bedroom, you you said, oh, that's my mentor, and it was a painting of a man, and it was his self-portrait, or maybe you said my teacher, but, you know, I know about different people you've known that I've read about in interviews with you, like Philip Gustin, you knew him, you know, you know lots of people, and you've known lots of people, but I've never heard
0: of this person, well, and I, I want to know the story. The, you know, the, I usually mention the, the people I've been influenced by. You know, Philip Gussin, Arandi, uh, Gorky, Dubuffet, Ensor, the, you know. And then if I put Sarkis in there, everyone would say, put well, Sarkis. It <laughs> doesn't fit. He made a choice to stay in Detroit. He tried New York once and hated it and just became, you know... Uh, Detroit artists but when I started arts it was called arts and crafts at the time now it's the college for creative studies he was uh, the painting teacher and it was quite an experience because we started off in painting class doing little tiny thumbnail still life sketches like this big you know and we did them over and over and over again forever and then finally he let us use paint but we had used just the earth colors for a really long time. And then we moved into color, you know. And um, I, I know all I can say is he comes, you know, from a very traditional background. And everything I learned was traditional. It's not like Yale where you talk about philosophy when you're looking at the painting or, you know, talk art speak, uh um, it was just really concrete, uh, fundamental stuff, you know, like well, this is uh, one little painting I did, one of my first paintings was a, a doll, and it was in red and blue, and he would say little things that I, like every every inch of the painting should breathe, and I still use that in every painting I do, you know, and... It, or this is a more interesting composition than this, and this is positive space, this is a negative space, just real fundamental stuff. And, of course, it, it was the fundamentals that tripped the masterpiece, you know, was something I grew up with, too. So I learned the fundamentals inside and out, and he was uh, my main teacher, And remember. I have very specific memories. I did a grasshopper painting once. I don't, I don't have it anymore, he said. He said... You're my little genius, but don't tell anyone that. <laughs> it was so cute. And when I was du buffet, which I was for about 3 years, every time I picked up a pencil or uh, I was doing a du buffet, and I knew I was because I was very influenced by him for a while. And you know, every time someone would come look at a painting, the first thing I would say is, you think it looks like a du buffet? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> and so I would look at a book, and then I would put it away and pretend, you know. And I wasn't someone who was, wasn't was afraid of influences. I wanted influences, but I also wondered at what point I was going to have my own voice or identity. And I said to him, you know, everything comes out as a du And he said, stop trying to not make a Dubuffet. He said, look like him, talk like him, act like him, and paint like him, and it'll go away. And I did. I stopped fighting it. It was, it was great advice, and um, my friend Richard, who we were like painting buddies all throughout art school, Uh, bought after he died after sarkis died he bought a lot of his paintings i i have one in my space i have you know a really nice one uh but i always loved that because it was a self-portrait and it's painted beautifully and you know he left that one for me in his will so i so i finally got, got it then, one of the other remar- remarkable moments for me, because we all have those life-changing moments, was another painting teacher I had. His name was Sam Pucci, and um, I was doing, it was, my, I think, my first year, and I was doing a you little, know, like, five-by-seven-foot painting in violets and making these nice marks and everything, and he came up to me and he said, you know, you're painting like an old lady. Well, that was a, a life, what do you call it? The moment of truth. Mm, you yeah. know, I could have just fallen apart, cried, and felt so discouraged and, and quit. And some people would have at that point. But it made me mad. And it changed everything for me, you know. I didn't want to paint like an <laughs> Right.
1: So, what did he mean? What do you think he meant by that?
0: Was being nice, too pretty, okay. and it was pretty, and it was careful, and you know all those things. It's interesting, though. I have to
1: say, why is it such an insult? I mean, apparently, painting like an old man is is not wasn't wasn't going to be a bad thing. But I mean, it's so sexist. Come on, so sexist. It worked.
0: Well, what? That's just a,
1: unfortunate. That's well, all. Just you think
0: such, it made you a better painter? You're such a feminist. I am, which I'm not. You know. Yeah. I'm, I took that as uh th- those are negative aspects of a woman you know and um and yes i yeah, of course it made me a better painter you know everything changed after that cuz i got sort of what he, you know what he was saying no if he had said you're painting like a an old man that would have meant nothing exactly because there are say. those you know right. i don't know if he was a sexist but he was making a point maybe he was but the, the the bottom line is it worked, and sometimes I have that in me. I can go to a show and I can say, "Oh, I know that was done by a woman." It's terrible, but it's, it's and and do you mean that as an insult when you say that? No, I mean that
1: it's obvious it was done by a woman. And do you think that when you see something and you think, "Oh, it's obvious that it was done by a man," or does that not matter? Is is man the standard,
0: the normal, the good? No. But there's sometimes, there are some women... I'm talking to the wrong person here. I don't know, I'm ben- <laughs> <laughs> We're going to wind up enemies. Yeah,
2: <laughs> no, it's okay. It's a healthy discussion. I think it's interesting.
0: I understand. There it. are some women who paint sort of feminine, you know, ways with sort of feminine shapes. And there's some men who do it too, and then I, I can't tell the difference, but sometimes I can. And, you know... Most men don't do vagina paintings, you know. Um, so you know, sometimes you can tell.
1: Yeah,
0: you can. Not all yeah, the time. I mean,
1: unfortunately, in our, I think we can probably both agree on this. There is a stigma. Yeah. Against being recognizably feminine, and there is no stigma against, you know, recognizably masculine
0: imagery or whatever. Um, so that is see, a- I don't think of, like, when I see a painting that doesn't stick out as, like, a, a, a particular woman painting. I don't think of masculine paintings, you know. Uh, sometimes I can't tell, because there are some men who do, that. I would guess were, you know, could have been done by a man or a woman. You yeah, know? yeah. I But think it, it, there it are is, some yeah. paintings, you know... Um, I can go. I have an old book. It was a it was a, a book called Women Choose Women, that you know catalog. And you know you could just tell some of yeah. them were so obviously stereotypical parts of a woman. I mean, yeah. I I used to sign my I always signed my paintings right from the beginning. Be Goodman, because I didn't want you know people to think I was a man or a woman. I just wanted the painting to stand on its own.
2: I think it's hard, like when when you've grown up and you've, if when you've grown up and the women around you have exhibited um, stereotypical qualities that are not things you want to emulate, that you don't want to grow, you don't want to grow up and also exhibit those tendencies, like being nice all the time, being like fake, putting on a smile when you really actually feel angry that we didn't see a lot of positive female role models sometimes growing up and I didn't wanna be like a woman either. I didn't wanna do anything like a woman.
0: My mother um, loved feminine things and she would buy me like dresses and lace, you know, and nice feminine things. And I was, you know, this was like the beginning of art school and I was wearing a blue work shirt and Levi's, you know. <laughs> yeah.
2: And did she try and to get
0: you to wear them? It, yeah, she would, you know, there was a, I remember a particular dress. It was a plaid dress and and I wore it to school and I said, I I'm not going to do this. I tore it up and used it as paint paintbrush, you know. Uh, but, you know, she really tried to, you know, like push her. She liked bright colors and pretty, you know, pretty things, and and I was like a blue work shirt and Levi's. So you know, I, I think you we decide what we. Yeah, and you got to make a statement about who you are. Yeah, yeah she did. She didn't. These win. are my
2: paint rags.
0: <laughs> you know, <I> <laughs> your femininity is my paint rags. <laughs> No. I had enough of it, you know. I was just like, I don't want to wear a dress starter school.
2: Yeah, yeah, I
0: understand. I have a similar experience. You know, I've never really thought of myself as a feminist, yeah. to tell you the truth. I was fiddling with sort of surrealism at the time, those symbol, you know, uh, pieces I did with my mother. I mean, I was just always the Cast Corridor, which was a famous, you know, you know Detroit group. Everyone was doing bullet holes and things and real macho kind of work, and then there was mine, you know, and it was had a whole different, you know, a lot of it at the time was surreal, was spaced, and it was coming from a very personal, it was very different. But I just stuck to what, what I wanted to do, and they did what they did. So there.
1: We'll return to our conversation with Brenda Goodman in a moment, you're listening to Magic Praxis, a podcast in which artists talk to artists in their studios. If you'd like to see images of some of the works we're discussing, please go to our website, magicpraxis.com. So when did you decide and know that you wanted to be an artist?
0: I think it was in high school. You know, um, uh, someone knew about arts and crafts. It was sort of a, pri- a small private Art school at the time. Now it's a big college, and I was interested, so I started taking evening classes. Yeah, I remember drawing a shoe, an old beat up shoe, <laughs> with Kante crayon background, and very, very traditional. and uh, And I really loved it. and And they gave me a four year scholarship when I got out of you know that high school and started. So. But what was interesting is I wasn't 100% sure what I was going to do. I took ceramics, I took sculpture, and I took painting. And um, painting felt right, you know, and that's when I, you know, started circus and uh, drawing. Every day, eight hours a day, we had a great drawing teacher, gestures, that's how we did it. Gestures and contour gestures. You know the book, The Natural Way to Draw? Yeah. That's the way I learned how to draw. Wow, And that's that makes the way sense. I taught. Whenever I taught, that's the way I taught. That movement. Yeah, gestures. Yeah. And contour, which isn't movement, but a whole yeah. different yeah. way of uh, yeah. perceiving line.
1: And was Sarkis an instrumental in you formulating your own sense of yourself as an artist?
0: I had no formulation of myself as an artist then. No. I did figure ground, paintings. I experimented with textures. That painting, you know, that was right after art school, the the cat painting. I mean, it was still figure ground, but it was getting a little bit more personal. It wasn't until I finished art school in 65, and then I continued to sort of paint that way, you know, afterwards, and I was teaching at the school, and it wasn't until my mother got sick that I felt like I wanted something a little bit, I wanted something more personal. I mean, I had done this figure ground thing for a long time, and uh, after she died, I did all of these drawings of with symbols, because I didn't want to just draw her as she was and make it that realistic, so I found symbols that I could look at and not feel completely pained, but to have it out there visually to express. And after my first show in 1973, which the painting that's in the garage I can show you, um, a poet, a well-known poet in Detroit came and bought one of my pieces. And she was teaching creative writing at Wayne State University. And she asked if I wanted to join. And I said, okay. So I sat in on their classes and I thought, what do I what do I want to express? I want I want like a to be able to tell a story about, you know, my, my mother's death was so big and I wanted to be able to express it, but I didn't know how to do it, you know. Um, and so I said, what, what do I want? I wanna I was pretty pretty tough. I had my white t shirt and my blue work shirt and my Levis and I had a big bulk of keys hanging from my, you know, Levis and I smoked Marlboros and had them You know, I was just like I'm a young cute dyke. Yep, I was. <laughs> I was. Do you, can you tell I me who heard, the
2: poet was?
0: Yeah, her name is. Uh, she changed her name, Faye uh, Naswe. and her work was very uh, surreal. Uh, I could pull out one of her books. But she was an incredibly creative teacher, so I thought, well, I think what I want is to be a heart, because I I wanna I wanna show more of less of my toughness and more of my you know vulnerability, and so I so I created this shape that was like an upside down abstract heart. It, it, that became my first beginning of telling a, a visual. Diary story. And that's when um, Gertrude Castle, who was the only gallery in town that showed like New York artists, you know, she showed Twerkoff and Gustin and, you know, and all those people. I had my first show in 73. Right after my mother died, Jack Twerkoff was in, in town and she, he, they came to see my show and Twerkoff said, You should show her. So she gave me a show the following year, and that was quite an honor because she didn't show local people. It was a show I was hanging in between Gustin and Twersky, and I held my own. You know, it was great. What was the original question?
1: When people asked you when you were a little kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? Did you say an artist, or how did you like? When was well, the moment when you decided? Well, to
0: I, I think you I but. Saw. But, when I was about eight years old, I did a little oil painting. I wish I still had it of a black and white puppy. Oh, I wish I still had it. I can still remember it and I did cartoons, I drew cartoons and and then there was you know that you know learn how to draw and you know that advertisement and I did that and i like I like to do all that and my father was you know unfortunately he was. A slave to my mother because she wanted material possessions. So he worked, you know, 24 hours a day in the grocery store to keep her in whatever she wanted. And and yet he was very talented. I remember he he did like he would draw the covers of Life magazine. There was one he did of uh, Eisenhower, and it was like such a a, you know beautiful drawing. And then I started drawing the covers of Norman Rockwell you know, for, on the post, and I couldn't do the faces, and he would fill in the faces for me. That's the, most, that's the most relationship I had with my father. But if he had pursued it, he could have been a really good commercial artist.
2: When you went on to become an artist, were your parents supportive?
0: Well, my father was never there to be, my, though my father did take me to buy an easel at the uh, local art supply store. That's all I remember about him being involved in it. But as difficult as my relationship was with my mother, there was always a lot of, it was a very turbulent, you know, uh, relationship. She was always supportive about me being a nurse, which was really nice. And she didn't, she wasn't one of these mothers that would say, you know, when you, when you finish school, I want you to get married and have kids. I mean, because my cousin did. She got married and had kids and, You know that was the that was you know what you did, and I went to art school. And sometimes she criticized my outfits, and you know, and she criticized all my friends, and she criticized everything about me and everyone and everything. But for some reason, she was very supportive, and she was also very demanding. So she wanted a gift for Flag Day. President's Day... She wanted what? A gift? Yeah, a painting or a a piece of art from me. These were her cats. I remember putting them in a Q-tip box. This was for one occasion or another, but she always wanted something for everything. And she asked you to paint her cats? No, it was a a gift to her. But you knew she wanted paintings as a gift? Yeah, and she wanted, always wanted a piece of my art. That's really cool. Do you think that has
1: psychologically played a role in your Always, you know, in your art making, like but on some level, you're kind of still kind of like in some way I don't know. thinking of
0: her I, I I know it was one of the most positive things about about her
2: I mean, it just reminds me of like being a kid, and like there's just something so beautiful about how kids make a drawing, and then they always give it to someone
0: mm-hmm. but she didn't it wasn't like that she demanded it. <laughs> <laughs> okay Sorry. so it's a There's little a bit different. perverted yeah the uh, beauty uh, of my uh, whole scenario it was a little different she expected <laughs> <laughs> it's not like oh mama i want you to have this yeah well okay I, I expect it you know i mean it, it wasn't like it was more of uh an expectation that she should get it in the same way i live 15 miles from her and she would call me up and say would you go get me a bread you know and i would get my car and go get her a bread because she was demanding in that way you know i think if she had lived she probably would have moved to new york with me she always wanted to be tightly connected to my life so um it it wasn't that childlike thing it was sort of but i i remember having those in the q-tip box and looking forward to giving them to her and i think she really i don't remember exactly but i think she really liked them you know, Linda's mother's a 100 years old, and she's going to die soon. And my mother died at 52 and I was 29. And I had no, you know, and she was like a, she was very stony. She wasn't like a physical, you know, affectionate mother. And uh, I didn't know what to do when she, you know, was sick. I mean, I, there weren't hospice, there weren't social workers. There was no one to talk to. I didn't even know I could you know, sit by her bed and hold her hand, because we didn't even have that kind of contact. And Then I did my self-portrait series. I did that one painting where I was by the bed holding her hand. And that was a real um, healing for me, that I was able to use my painting to recreate something I was never able to do in real mm-hmm. life, and, and so regretted that I wasn't able to. Um, so, you know, sometimes, that doesn't happen often, but sometimes painting can be, you can recreate something in in your painting to heal you.
2: What was it like for you to move to
0: New York? It was hard. Because I, I lived in the suburbs until I was... Uh, even when I was in art school, I still lived at my mother's house, and then, and she lived in the suburbs. And then I moved into an apartment in the inner city near where the corridor Group was, and, um, and then she died in seventy two. In seventy six, I moved to New York, so Detroit was my whole life. You know, we weren't like a moving family, and. You know, I moved by myself and moved into 94 Bowery because I knew I knew someone who lived there. and When I used to come visit New York, I would stay with her, so I was familiar with the building. And so it was great to just move into into that loft. But I remember the first night just crying. It was like, you know, everything, my whole life and my emotional life and everything was in, in Detroit. And there I was in this big, it was a great open space. That was nice. Uh, but, the, you know, I was all alone, and the mistake I made was, you know, not getting a job so I could network with people. I stayed in the loft. I had a show coming up the following year in Detroit, and I, I stayed in the loft and worked. And then at night I would take my diary and go out for dinner by myself and just write. Um, but, I, you know, it, it was hard because I'm not like a chatty person. I mean, I could talk like this a lot, but, you know, I didn't go up to people in the restaurant or in the coffee shop and make conversation. so I would just observe for a long time. And I would go to Washington Square Park and sit and watch the people, and that's where I met or saw Philippe Petit, who's doing his magic in a circle I did a whole series about about him uh, uh he became a symbol in
2: one ball, of your paintings
0: yeah he did he did you know he had balls running up and down his arms yeah. and you know ball landing on his nose and he did you know great magic and he walked
1: he, the tightrope right?
0: he's the one who yeah he, he's the one who did the uh the, the world trade times. But, so he became my imaginary friend that I would take home and I did these uh, pieces about him. He would eat dinner with me and, you know, I had a, a, a shape for him with a magic hanky and he would bring me a relationship or whatever I wanted. These were all in symbols.
1: But it's in some, so many ways it seems like the abstraction of now is going back to that pre, before, you had this long period of like figuration. But before that, they were more abstract, and you were working more with symbols, mm-hmm. not literal representation, right?
0: Yeah, it, it it goes back and forth, but what I've dealt with since around 95 is creating a harmony between figure and abstraction. Right now, like the one you just saw is probably more abstract than figure. Sometimes the figure equals the abstraction. It just depends on the piece, but... One thing that satisfies me the most is the is the combination. I think working figurative slash abstraction is really hard, and I think I do it. I think I do it well. I mean, no one has ever said these aren't working. Combining the two, it's not easy, and sometimes I'm not quite sure. Like in the new one, that's clearly some sort of animal, and nothing else is figurative in the in the painting and yet it, it works so is
1: there anybody else painting now that you think of as, as, as doing that also
0: well I think Amy Sillman does to some extent though hers are more abstract and figurative And when she does some figurative it's it's you know like her ink drawings they are figurative um, um, there are there are a few people there are a few people but I, I think it's hard
1: do you think that idea and you comes from knowing Guston and being influenced by him, or no?
0: His last paintings were more um, re- representational than abstract, I think. I mean, there's abstraction in them, but I think they're more uh, telling a, a narrative. When he started doing those, I had broke loose from the symbolism and was doing the abstractions, you know. Whereas he did the abstractions and then went and wanted something more, and then did the, you know, the, his later work, because it was more meaningful. And I sort of flipped, but then I did abstract, like the one in the dining room, I did those for 10 years, and I felt like, I need more than this, you know, and that's when I started doing the self-portraits. And then after that, I wanted to combine the two, because they both meant something. That's the combination I like the best. It gives me the, the joy of abstraction, and it has the content.
1: Oh, I just read this great um, quote recently by uh, Joan Mitchell. She said, the painting has to work, but, it has to, but the painting needs to say more than just the painting works.
0: Yeah, and sometimes they, they work very well, but that's just not enough. It is for some people. It isn't for me. You know, um, even when I look at my new little ones, some of them are very abstract, and I say, is this enough? And then I look at them and I say, well, it looks like these two shapes are embracing. I mean, there's always something that is a connection
1: somewhere. Yeah, we were reading this great essay by David Brody. It was an interview with you that was reproduced in a couple of your catalogs. And I loved what he had to say about, about all this, about Gustin and about abstraction and how he said something like, um, even in the most you know, vehemently abstract painting, it's never more than an inch away from urgent picturing. Hmm.
0: He, he writes really well about my really work. Well. He's a good writer.
1: Yeah. Really knowledgeable about art history too and how he talks about your work.
2: It's interesting that you were, before you were talking about in very early in your life, you went to a poetry class. To me, a poet, just by writing a poem, is sort of a direct line to their voice. Mm -hmm. They're putting their voice directly out there. And I wonder, in painting, if bringing some figuration into it is a direct line to what what your voice is.
0: I I felt like abstraction, I mean, if you look at like a Rothko, you can get emotional on some level about this pain. There's one that just seems very sad to me. I mean, uh, but I think with just abstract painting, the, the feelings are more generalized. You yeah. know, you can't even pinpoint them sometimes. And when I've done those kind of paintings, I, say, I, don't, I don't know what this means. But it, after, you know, like eight, 10 years of doing those, I felt like I need something more personal. Right. You know, and, he, and then, you know, at that point I weighed about 210 pounds. And I said, you know, well, why don't you deal with yourself, why don't you do a self-portrait, you know, and so you could look at it and, and let it be like a mirror for you. And then I, you know, after I did those, I started going back to bringing the two together because I didn't want to give those up either.
2: This episode of Magic Praxis was mixed by John Bender, who also does our music. Sign up for future episodes on iTunes or at magicpraxis.com. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.
0: When are we going to be able to get that ice cream cone? You know? Maybe let's do it now. Can we do it? Yeah. yeah.